Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. You can visit us at www.commonwealthclub.org. I'd like to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco and our radio and online audiences. It's my great pleasure to introduce Jamil Zaki tonight, the author of The War for Kindness, Building Empathy in a Fractured World. I'll tell you a little bit about Jamil. He's a professor of psychology at Stanford University and the director of the Stanford Social Neuroscience Laboratory. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the New Yorker, and the Atlantic, everything we all read. Thank you much for coming, Jamil, and it's all yours. Thanks very much. Thanks, George, for that introduction. Thanks for having me, and thanks, everyone, for being here. I'm excited to tell you about some of the ideas from my new book, very brand new, like newborn, like three-week-old book, um, and more excited to hear your thoughts and questions afterwards. Um, and please, if you have any questions that are burning and you want the answer to right away, feel free to raise your hand and interrupt me with that as well. Um, so um, this is Tony McAleer um, at the height of his influence in the Canadian white power movement. Um, Tony was born and raised in Vancouver uh, in a house that was not very inviting. His parents didn't pay much attention to him. He was bullied at school. And when he was 10 years old, he walked in on his dad in bed with a woman who was not his mom, uh, which detonated his family and left him feeling isolated, angry, and lost. Tony took solace in uh, aggressive music. He loved punk like uh, The Clash and Black Flag and unfortunately stumbled into a different genre of music, white power rock, um, like bands like Screwdriver. Um, and at their shows and on their message boards, Tony found something that he had not felt in a long time, which was acceptance and approval. People there liked him, not just because of his race, but because he was smart and funny. And he quickly became hooked. Um, by 17, he had pinned a swastika onto his green camo jacket. He spent hours a day on online forums discussing Holocaust denial. And, uh, and he started uh, Canadian Liberty Net, which was a phone line people could call into to listen to xenophobic and anti-Semitic messages. He was a hit. At, the, at its height, Canadian Liberty Net got hundreds of calls a day, and Tony appeared multiple times on national television as an avatar of a new generation of leaders of neo-Nazi and white supremacist movements. He was lost to the world, full of hatred, um, and empty as an individual. Uh, when this picture was taken, he told me he was pretty sure he would be either dead or in prison in the next few years. Now, maybe some of you have heard Tony's story, and maybe even if you haven't, some elements of it might be familiar to you. Either way, you might imagine that someone like Tony is fundamentally different than you and me, and maybe he is. I mean, most people, thankfully, who come from difficult homes don't end up uh, as hate group members. But I would argue that if Tony was psychologically sick, the illness that he had is not as rare as we might hope it would be. I think many of us have noticed, as our culture has started to become more frayed and polarized, that people are becoming less connected more outraged, maybe even more hateful. As a psychologist who studied empathy for the last 15 years, I think that Tony's descent into hatred is emblematic of some of the reasons that it's become harder for us to care about each other. And I think his escape from this life gives us hints about how we can become better at empathizing. Those are the two ideas that the War for Kindness is really about, and those are the two ideas I want to talk about today. Um, so before we start with Tony, we have to go way back, though, like 30, 40, 50, 60,000 years ago to a time that humanity was not really a very impressive species. At that time, we were just medium-sized mammals. We weren't particularly strong or fast. We couldn't fly or swim very well. And we weren't even the only smart species on the planet. As recently as 30,000 years ago, um, at least five other large-brained human species shared the Earth with us. But we had one thing that set us apart, and that was each other. More than any other species on the planet, sapiens cared about each other and helped each other and worked together. And that made all the difference. Because even if as individuals we were unremarkable, as a collective we were breathtaking, like superorganisms that could do things that no other animal could dream of. 
Things like taking down woolly mammoths, building suspension bridges, and eventually taking over the world. Insert evil laugh here, right? (laughs) Um, So basically, one of the things that made our species succeed was our ability to work together and our proclivity for helping one another. But why were we so good at it? Why are we so good at helping each other? Well, I and lots of psychologists think that our ability to thrive together boils down to a weird and wonderful fact about humanity, which is that even though people are physically separate, we are psychologically overlapping. In fact, we often feel like things that are happening to other people are actually happening to us. In case you haven't had this experience in a while and are not scared of heights, if you are scared of heights, you can look away. Here's a guy walking across the Grand Canyon. So the funny thing is that you and me and all of us are standing or sitting right now on relatively solid ground. I say relatively, this is San Francisco after all. Um, But we're in no danger of uh, plummeting to our doom. And yet if you're anything like me, just watching this video might make your palms sweat, might make you feel a little bit nervous as though it were you, not this guy up on the wire. Centuries ago, the philosopher Adam Smith described exactly what you might be experiencing right now. He said, the mob, when gazing at a a dancer on the slack rope, naturally writhe and twist their own bodies as if in his situation. This is what Smith called the fellow feeling, the idea that we vicariously take on other people's experiences. Smith did not think that the fellow feeling was idle. He thought it was the magnetic north of our moral compass. As he would argue, if seeing someone else in pain feels like being in pain, you have every reason not to hurt them. And if seeing someone happy makes you feel happy, you have every reason to help them. According to Smith, the fellow feeling turns the golden rule into an instinct. In the centuries since he wrote, we've translated his idea of the fellow feeling into the modern concept of empathy, Um, Empathy is a simple word, but a complex idea. So I want to unpack it for you. To do so, imagine that you are having lunch with a friend and he gets a phone call and becomes visibly upset. You don't know what's wrong, but it's clear something's wrong. And soon he's crying. Now, as you look at your friend, a bunch of stuff might happen in you. For one, you might become upset yourself, vicariously sharing his feeling like Smith described. But you might also try to figure out what he's feeling and why. And if you're a good friend, at least, you might care about what he's going through and try to figure out how you could make a difference for him. These three ways that we respond to each other's emotions, sharing what other people feel, trying to understand what they feel, and caring about their experiences, together comprise empathy. Empathy resides within each of us, but it's also collective. And you can think of the collective empathy in this room, or this city, or like in our species, as the human equivalent of a natural resource. And it is a precious one. Decades of evidence, bless you, from psychology and other fields, demonstrate the many ways that empathy benefits all sorts of different people, including the people who feel it. So individuals who are high versus low in empathy, for instance, tend to be happier, are less prone to stress and depression, um, and, uh, and make friends more easily. Adolescents who are able to pick out what other people feel uh, are able to better survive seventh grade intact, which is no mean feat in my opinion, um, and older adults who experience high levels of empathy even experience greater longevity. Empathy's benefits, of course, bubble outward. So, for instance, patients of empathic doctors are more satisfied with their care and more likely to listen to doctors' orders. Um, Spouses of empathic partners are happier in their marriages. And employees of empathic managers are less likely to call in sick to work with stress-related illnesses. And it might not surprise Adam Smith that empathy's benefits also uh, reach out to entire communities. Individuals who experience lots of empathy are more likely to do things like donate to charity, volunteer, and help strangers. They're more likely to be open-minded about the experiences of people who look or think differently than themselves, and they're more interested in environmental sustainability. So this is great, right? We're like the most empathic species on the planet. We've got this ancient instinctive engine for kindness and cooperation 
I mean, we must just be sort of in this global circle holding hands and saying, wait a minute, no, that's not the world that we're experiencing, right? This is hard. Empathy is hard. And I would argue, in fact, that it's getting harder. To think about why, let's return to our um, Paleolithic pals here and think about the world in which empathy evolved. At that time, people existed in tiny bands of hunter-gatherers, each one just a few families apiece. What did that mean? It meant that if you ran into someone else, probably a few things were true. So, for instance, that person was probably really familiar to you. You might have known each other your entire lives. Maybe you were even related. Um, you were visible to each other, such that you could see pain and pleasure on each other's face and hear it in each other's voices, and you were accountable to one another. You knew each other's history of kindness and callousness and cruelty and could act accordingly. These pieces of social exchange are what I call empathy's primordial soup, packed with ingredients that make it easy and natural for us to care about and understand one another. And even now, empathy comes most naturally when social life looks like it did back then. For instance, when we can see people up close or when we're in public and other people know what we're doing. But I would also argue that these same ingredients of social life are rapidly fading um, in our modern context for lots of reasons, um, one of which is that we're atomized um, more than we ever were before. So in 2007, humanity crossed a remarkable line. For the first time, uh, more people lived inside cities than outside them. This is like a really rapid trend, such that in 1950, one-third of humans were urban, but by 2050, that number will be two-thirds. Um, what that means is that the average or typical person just a few decades ago would probably wake up in a place that looks like this, maybe a small town where everybody knows everybody. But today, and increasingly into the future, the typical human being will wake up in a place like this, a megalopolis where they're surrounded by millions of other people. But just being surrounded by people doesn't mean that they're familiar to us. Because the rise in urban living has been accompanied by another rapid trend in solitary living. More people live alone than at any time in human history, and that trend is especially pronounced in people who live in cities and in young people. So in the U.S., for instance, 18 to 34-year-olds are 10 times more likely to live alone than they were just uh, 100 years ago. What this means is that in a real way, humanity is increasingly alone in a crowd. We see more people than we ever did before, but we know fewer of them. And even the rituals that used to bring us into regular contact, things like bowling leagues and even grocery shopping, have given way to more solitary pursuits, many of which we carry out online. What that means is that when we run into other people, we're often in transactional settings, we're thinned out and anonymous to each other. At the same time that we're becoming more isolated and atomized, we're also becoming increasingly tribal. Um, tribalism, of course, is our very natural, ancient tendency to split the world into us and them and favor us's and disfavor them's, whoever them is, right? And to derogate, dismiss, and even aggress against people who are on the other side of any conflict. Tribalism is not new. It's as old as tribes. That's how it got its name. Um, and it characterizes all sorts of interactions from, um, from sports fandom to uh, ethnic and international conflicts. But in ways that I'm happy to talk about later, if you all are interested, tribalism is intensifying um, and mutating into different and more uh, pernicious forms. Um, and in especially tribalized and aggressive contexts, um, empathy doesn't only disappear, it reverses into schadenfreude, or the enjoyment of other people's pain. Um, I think of America, and not just America's, but definitely the U.S.'s political climate right now as a schadenfreude buffet, right? I mean, I think anywhere you go, whether it's in real life or in the newspaper or on Twitter, you can find people sort of savoring the pain of the other side in ways that are really troubling. Finally, at the same time as we're becoming more atomized and tribal, we're also becoming increasingly technologically mediated. We might not run into a bunch of people we know on the sidewalk anymore, but we can certainly still find them. They're on these massive interconnected social networks, which could be great. 
I often talk about the internet and social media in particular as humanity's greatest empathic opportunity. We have the chance to connect with anybody anywhere in the world at any time in our, on their own terms. But oftentimes, I think the way that social media platforms are structured doesn't le- help us take advantage of that opportunity for a couple of reasons. One, whereas analog hangouts have all sorts of rich cues in them, like people's facial expressions and gestures and voices, oftentimes online, instead people are turned into avatars and strings of text. My friend, the psychologist Juliana Schroeder, has found that when you reduce people, for instance, to just text instead of hearing their voice, it's easier to dehumanize them to view them as less than a full person, especially if they already disagree with you. I think that that's what we see a lot of the time, for instance, with cyberbullying. Other social media platforms are best suited to our worst instincts. So my friend Molly Crockett, for instance, has found that on Twitter, when people tweet outrage and even hatred, um, their tweets are more likely to be uh, uh, rewarded with retweets and likes, especially from people who already agree with them. In other words, as currently structured, and I'm not saying this is necessarily true of technology, but as currently structured, um, social media makes it harder to see the people who are different from us and easier to reward people who are like us for expressing tribalistic anger and animus towards the other side. So to sum up, um, people at the time that empathy developed and evolved were interdependent, aligned, and visible to each other, And now we're tribal, anonymous, and isolated. This is not great soil for empathy to grow in. Um, And to my mind, it's reminiscent of the experiences of Tony McAleer. Um, Tony uh, was alone and isolated and troubled. And he took out or blamed his own difficult experiences on outsiders who he didn't have to see or interact with or think very much about. And he was rewarded by members of his own tribe often online, for expressing his worst instincts. His empathy evaporated little by little until there was almost none left. The way that he put it to me when I interviewed him was that he was like a frog boiled alive in a pot of water that was getting one degree hotter at a time. Now, if I can torture the metaphor a little bit, I would say that if Tony was boiling, I'm worried because I feel like the water that we're all in is getting a little bit warmer. I feel like increasingly we're put in situations that make it hard for us to empathize, especially with people who are different from us, but incentivize us for expressing aggression and uh, and animus. One way of putting this is that if you wanted to build a, a society to break empathy, you could scarcely do better than we have. And in fact, there are some signs that empathy has broken. I'm going to show you the most famous empathy test in the world. It's super simple. You can try it yourself right now. It's just a set of statements that you read and you're asked to, tell, uh, to think about how, much, how well they describe you from one, not at all, to five, extremely. So you can try it out. You don't have to say it out loud. Um, but for instance, um, I often have tender, concerned feelings for people less fortunate than me. You can think about how well that describes you. You can think about how well it describes the person sitting next to you, if you know them. (laughs) Um, Or this one, I try to look at everyone's side of a disagreement before I make a decision. These two statements, plus 26 more like it, give you an empathy score from one to five that says how empathic you are, or at least how empathic you say you are, and I'm happy to talk about the difference between those things later if people want. Um, Since this test was developed in the 1970s, hundreds of thousands of people have answered these questions. And more recently, psychologists decided to see how these trends in empathy looked over time. And the news was not great. Um, So here I'm going to show you the average American's empathy score in 1979, which is about a four out of five. Not terrible. Um, Here it is again in 2009, about a three out of five. Um, It's a pretty big drop. In psychology, it's rare to see effects uh, this big over time. To put it in context for you, the average American in 2009, less empathic than 75% of people just 30 years earlier. And a lot of this drop, um, by the way, has occurred in the 21st century. So this is uh, uh, an accelerating, not a decelerating trend, it appears, right? Um, 
And again, this is not great news. I don't know whether this study uh, or this finding surprises you. Maybe it doesn't surprise you. Maybe you didn't need a study to tell you that it's becoming harder to empathize. Maybe you've seen other people around you acting less empathically. Maybe you felt yourself sort of reacting to people in a way that you're not happy with, that doesn't match your values. I know I have. Like I said, I've been studying empathy my entire career. And just as I've sort of become interested in all the ways that it helps people, I've noticed just as a person, the, the many forces in our culture that seem to be pushing against our natural capacity to care for one another. And I've felt those inside me too. One way of putting it that I think a lot about is that being a psychologist studying empathy these days feels like being a climate scientist studying the polar ice caps, right? It's like we discover the value of something just as it disappears all around. God, this is bleak, huh? Well, we still have time. The hour is not up. And so I want to spend the rest of our time thinking about what we can do about this and in general uh, asking whether it has to be this way. Must we simply accept that as these broader social trends continue, as we become more urban, as we use technology more, that we will also become more callous and disconnected and even cruel? Or is there anything we can do to push back against these trends? I think the answer to that question depends on an even more basic question, which is, can we control our empathy at all? I think the standard answer to this question from psychology and other fields is no, because empathy is often viewed as a trait, something that you either have or you don't have. I call this the Roddenberry hypothesis because, and here I'm going to out myself as a huge nerd. Uh, ready? Okay. Gene Roddenberry enshrined this idea into the characters of the greatest television show of all time. That's right. It is, well, you know what it is. Um, it is... Star Trek, the next generation. <laughs> um, so on the one side, we have, we're really, really doing this, uh, the ship's counselor, Deanna Troy, known throughout the galaxy for her high levels of empathy. And on the other side, we have the ship's lieutenant commander, Data, an android who uh, doesn't experience emotions and as a result is colorblind to what other people feel. The Roddenberry hypothesis, as I see it in psychology, holds that there's a kind of continuum separating these characters, and each one of us has a level of empathy somewhere between them. Um, and, and just like our adult height or the color of our eyes, we're stuck there for life. There's nothing we can do to change that level of empathy that we have. We were born there and we'll die there. Now, if you're already highly empathic, Good for you. That means that you'll always be highly empathic. You'll benefit from your empathy and the people around you will as well. But this is bad news if you have trouble empathizing because it means that no matter what you do or how hard you try, you'll never get better at connecting with people. And I'd say it's worse news for all of us because it suggests that if modern life is putting barriers in the way of empathy, there's nothing we can do to overcome those either. Now, this is a fatalistic view, but thankfully, it's also wrong. <laughs> I want to tell you about a new view of empathy um, that, to me, is really not that new at all. Um, it actually defined most of my childhood. Um, so it turns out that in the 1970s, Washington State University offered full-ride scholarships to students from the world's poorest nations. Uh, my mother won the scholarship from Peru, and my dad did not get a scholarship, <laughs> but he came to Washington State anyways from Pakistan. <laughs> uh, they flew from Lima and Lahore, each city at that time uh, as big as L.A., now bigger than New York, each one, um, to Pullman, this sleepy little town where they uh, fell in love, looking just extremely 1970s <laughs> in the process. <laughs> um, for them, though, is not meant to be... Um, when I, think about my parents, or even talk to them now, I think the biggest thing that they had in common was how foreign they felt in the U.S. Um, that sort of brought them together. They took comfort in each other. Um, but as they grew more comfortable with their new home, they grew less comfortable with each other. Um, so they started uh, divorcing when I was eight, but didn't finish until I was 12. And it was not one of those friendly ones, you know? <laughs> um, and so as their only child, I was kind of their, the bridge between their world. And I would constantly bounce back and forth between their houses, and it really felt more like I was bouncing between parallel universes, right? I think any child of divorce might be familiar with this scenario, but it's almost like my parents' hopes and 
fears and irritations were as far apart as their hometowns. So when I would be with my mom, I'd have to figure out the rules that governed her heart and mind and make those true for me. But then as soon as I got to my dad's house, they would stop working. Um, it really felt like I was being pulled in all these different directions and it was hard emotional labor for an eight-year-old. Um, and I think at some point, all three of us felt like I was going to have to choose one of them and give up on really knowing the other parent. Um, but I knew that for all of our sake, I needed to keep on trying, and I did. Um, and eventually, it got easier. Um, I learned to sort of tune myself to their different emotional frequencies and stay connected with my mom and my dad, even as their connection to each other fell apart. Um, so I would say that empathy saved me. Uh, I, mean, I didn't even know what that word meant at the time, um, but it didn't save me because it came easily. Um, I always talk about my parents' divorce as an empathy gym for me. It forced me to work right at care and understanding and that work and the way that it helped me is part of why I've been curious about this phenomenon ever since. Um, in the last many years I've discovered and lots of other psychologists have discovered evidence that contradicts the standard wisdom, the Roddenberry hypothesis, but connects with my own childhood experience. The idea is that empathy is not just a trait. It's something like a skill. This is not to say that it's not genetic in nature. There's clearly a genetic component to empathy, but that's not the whole story. Our experiences also shape how empathic we become throughout the course of our lives. Some experiences, like Tony's, might atrophy our empathy, but other experiences can cause it to grow. And through the right choices, habits, and practices, we can grow our empathy on purpose. You make choices like this all the time, whether you know it or not. Will you cross the street to avoid a homeless person or focus on what they're going through? Will you tune someone out when they disagree with you or try to figure out where they're coming from? When we choose to connect over and over again, we can build a stronger, more muscular type of empathy. Since I started working on this topic, I've tried to build empathy gyms for other people along with my many colleagues. And I want to tell you about three insights that we've formed about the right way to put people in a position, and that includes other people and ourselves, where empathy can come more naturally, where we can try to practice it and get better at it. The first insight is that if you want to move beyond us and them, um, you can start by returning to you and I. I think oftentimes when we see someone who's different from us, it's tempting to see them just as a representation of their group, to not really see them as a fully realized individual with their own idiosyncrasies, right? So I might see someone who I, I disagree with politically and just say they're a member of that party as opposed to a, to a real person. Um, but one of the things that psychology has taught us over and over again is that that's harder to do when we actually know somebody because people are complicated and can't be reduced to one form of their identity. Along with my colleagues at Stanford's VR lab, we've tried to take a high-tech approach to helping people kind of connect with the experiences of people they wouldn't otherwise. We use VR. In this study, in particular, we focused on helping people connect with the population that doesn't receive a lot of empathy often, that is, homeless individuals in the Bay Area. So in this VR simulation, participants went through the stages of what it might be like to become homeless. So I'll show you um, if it works. Um, uh, a clip of this. So in one scene, you've been evicted from your house and are trying to sell furniture to make ends meet. In a second scene, you're living in your car, which is then impounded. Um, and in a third scene, um, you're taking to a local bus line for shelter. Um, this is modeled off of interviews that we conducted with um, homeless individuals uh, in the Palo Alto area. This is a short simulation, only about 20 minutes long, but it had long lasting impact. So compared to people who did a control simulation, a month after uh, going through this simulation, participants were less likely to dehumanize homeless individuals and more likely to support policies um, that help with affordable housing, which, as we all know, is a big issue in this area. 
So that's one way that we've tried to sort of get people to think about the individual experiences of people in a group that they might not, bless you, um, understand otherwise. But there are, of course, more old-fashioned ways to get to know individuals. Um, For one, if there's a group that you don't understand, you can read novels about them. There's lots of work that suggests that when we um, immerse ourselves in fictional accounts of people who are different from us, we actually build empathy for not just fictional characters, but for real people who are from those groups. But the most old-fashioned way to get to know individuals is to actually get to know them. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) This is what psychologists call the contact hypothesis. The idea that oftentimes um, when we get to know someone as an individual, it's impossible to stereotype them in the same way that we would without knowing them. And in, in fact, this was the secret to how Tony emerged from his past as a white supremacist. Um, A few years after this photo was taken, Tony was trying to extract himself for various reasons that I can tell you about if you're interested from sort of his anti-Semitic white supremacist life. Um, And he was sort of succeeding, but wasn't quite there yet. And he befriended a man um, who he didn't realize at the time was Jewish. And it came up in conversation that this other person was Jewish. And Tony was shocked and decided to admit to his past behaviors, what he had done. And he was shocked that his new friend didn't judge him or walk away, but instead showed him compassion. He said, "Um, that's not who you are. That's what you did. But I see you. You're better than that. And Tony, again, was completely taken aback. He spent the next half hour weeping in this guy's office and sort of being shown compassion by someone who he hadn't shown compassion to realizing that that person was so much more than the identity that Tony would have put on him otherwise, cracked him open and set him on a path to redemption. And many years later, um, this is Tony now, um, Tony, along with a bunch of former hate group members, created the group um, Life After Hate. So this is a group dedicated to extracting other people from the life they were once lost in. Life After Hate has received thousands of inquiries from hate group members and their families. And what they teach people is that just because hatred buries empathy doesn't mean that it kills it. And that callousness and hatred are much harder close up. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. A second principle that um, my lab and others draw on is that although we experience empathy as individuals, in another way, importantly, um, empathy, uh, (laughs) empathy resides in cultures. Tony didn't act hatefully because he was just a hateful individual. He also acted hatefully because he fell into a community of people who agreed with that position and reinforced him whenever he acted out. This is what we could call conformity. The idea that people desperately want to be part of something greater than themselves. And in order to do so, they think, act, and even dress in ways that other people do, right? (laughs) Conformity often gets a bad rap, um, and sometimes it deserves it, right? Conformity is one of the forces that causes adolescents to, for instance, start using drugs or to bully each other or to enter communities like the one that Tony did, right? Um, But conformity can also be a good thing. People are more likely to conserve energy, donate to charity, and vote when they know that other people around them are doing the same thing. So recently, my lab decided to figure out whether we could use conformity to amplify rather than tamp down people's empathy. And we focused on a group of people who are just super conformist. I mean, it's not a knock on them, but it's true. They're like the most conformist people on the planet. It's middle schoolers, right? So, <laughs> so we, we traveled to a bunch of middle schools in the Bay Area and tried to convince seventh graders that empathy is cool. <laughs> really, we did. Um, we showed them these videos. Uh, here, I'll show you a snippet from one of these videos. Specifically, seventh graders tend to like empathy more, meaning that they want to be empathic. They also value empathy in others, meaning that they like it when other people are empathic and want to be friends with empathic people. Finally, they expect empathy from others, meaning that in seventh grade, most people are empathic. 
And now more than ever, you and your seventh grade peers are better able to share and understand each other's emotions. Okay, so after seeing clips like that, we asked students to tell us why they valued empathy so much. Um, And then after they went home, we collated all their responses such that when they came back to school the next day, we gave them a brochure full of their pictures of their friends and classmates and under each picture, a testimonial of why that person valued empathy. So what we're doing here is exposing students to a real social norm around them. Right? I think this is important because sometimes the loudest voices in our culture are not the kindest, right? You think about the schoolyard bully or the like, cable news pundit, depending on what station you're looking at. Um, and, um, and, and I think sometimes it's easy to uh, confuse those loud voices with the majority. Sometimes, though, and one thing that I've discovered since publishing this book is that there's so many people who are quietly hungering for a kinder and more empathic world. And so what we tried to do with this study was, again, expose students to that real social norm all around them. Um, After they saw this, we asked them to talk about why students in their grade valued empathy so much. And students loved doing this. Here's a sample response from one of them. People in my grade feel very strongly about empathy. It's really important to value empathy. And I can see that people in my grade value it a lot. Smiley face emoji, which is as enthusiastic as I think you can get in seventh grade. Um, So uh, the question, though, is when we exposed students to this empathic norm, did that actually make them more empathic? Right? And so to test this, we came back to these schools two months later, and we asked students to nominate people in their class who were nice, who seemed to care about others, who did favors for others, and so forth. And what we found is that compared to students in control conditions, um, students who we had convinced that empathy was cool, this is what we call our empathic norm condition, first of all, believed us, so they were more likely to think that empathy was popular among their classmates, And that, in turn, predicted their likelihood of acting kindly. And mind you, this is not them telling us that they acted kindly. It's their classmates saying that they were acting kindly, which to us is a more, um, I don't know, reliable measure, maybe. (laughs) Um, So that's another sort of principle that we've used in building empathy. And I think it's an important one, especially any place where you lead, right? So if you're the head of a family or a company or team or town or any organization where you have sway, I think that you can sort of, this is like news you can use. By building an empathic culture, by highlighting empathic social norms, you can sort of use the gravity of conformity um, as a pull towards kindness instead of towards cruelty. The last principle that I want to talk about um, that we've used is the idea that simply understanding that we can build empathy is the first step towards doing it. Some of you might be familiar with my colleague at Stanford, Carol Dweck, and her idea of mindsets. This is the idea that the way that we think about each other changes the way that we respond to challenges. So for instance, if you think that intelligence is a fixed trait and you can't become smarter no matter what, you'll shy away from intellectual challenges. But if you think that that intelligence is a skill that you can grow, you'll embrace those challenges as opportunities to become smarter. Carol and I decided to see recently whether we could do the same thing with empathy or whether the same was true about empathy. So we presented people with essays that were meant to either convince people that empathy was a trait. Um, so this is, the, this is the trait one. Empathy like plaster is pretty stable over time. Some people read that. Other people read an essay, this one, um, empathy is changeable and can be developed, meant to give, convince them that empathy was a skill instead. Um, After this, we put them through an empathy obstacle course, all sorts of situations that sometimes make it difficult to care about and connect with other people. And over and over again, we found that people who we had convinced that empathy was a skill worked harder at it. So for instance, um, they, um, they spent more time listening to the stories of, um, of people who were a different race than them. And they devoted more energy trying to understand the opinions of people who were of a different political persuasion. This to us is really ironic. I've told you that the sort of party line from psychology and philosophy and, you know, the whole intellectual and academic class is that empathy is a trait, the Roddenberry hypothesis. Well, it turns out that just believing the Roddenberry hypothesis might get in our way, might convince us to empathize in ways that are lazier or that come easier to us. For instance, just with people who look or think the way that we do. 
But understanding, as I hope you do, that empathy is a skill, I think presents us with a challenge, an opportunity, and maybe a responsibility to empathize with purpose in ways that match our values. So I want to end by thinking one more time um, about our ancient pal here. Um, Yes, the life they lived maybe was more conducive to empathy. Maybe the social world that they were uh, that they were in made it easier for them to connect with other people. But their life was different than ours in like a million ways. For instance, it was probably really difficult for this person to find enough calories to survive. And existing in that world has led us to have these evolved predilections for calorically dense foods like fats and sugars and salts. Those same instincts might not serve us very well now because we we can live relatively sedentary lives and we're constantly surrounded by calorically dense foods. And we might just say, well, I guess our ancient instincts aren't well matched to the modern world. So we're doomed to indulge ourselves into a state of ill health. But many of us don't feel that way. We make a different choice, for instance, to eat uh, healthier or to exercise, not because it comes naturally. It certainly doesn't come naturally to me, um, but because we know that that's the better choice for us. It's the choice we want to make. So I want to challenge all of us to do the same thing with our empathy and to empathize with purpose, especially when it's hard, to point our care at people who don't have a voice and point our curiosity at people who might frustrate us or even, uh, or even scare us. Um, because I think that if we can do that, then we can build our empathy. And if we can do that as individuals, then we can benefit from sort of greater empathy and the people around us can too. But if we can do that together, then maybe something more special can happen. Maybe we can begin to try to mend some of the tears in our social fabric. And that's the good news here. Empathy, not just a precious resource, it's also a renewable one. Thank you. Yeah, I'd like to remind our audience uh, that we're listening to Jamil Zaki talk about his book, The War for Kindness, and it's time for questions and answers. Questions from you, answers from him. Great. Hi. Um, I'm thinking about like these Paleolithic ancestors and empathy being evolved for that environment. And yet when I'm thinking about our modern environment, I find that sometimes the most difficult or strained relationships I have are actually with family (laughs) and sometimes even with friends. But so I was thinking like how to square that circle really. Yeah, it's a great question. And certainly, right, family, I can't remember who said this, family are the people you love but don't like, right, (laughs) necessarily. Um, And I think that certainly family members, friends can become the most difficult people in our lives, but there's still a sense of intimacy and familiarity. And I think that I hope for for you and certainly for me, when push comes to shove, um, you end up sort of in their corner. You end up wanting to support them. Um, That's, of course, not always the case at all. certainly wasn't the case with my parents. But I guess what I see in our modern context is not that. It's not direct conflict between individuals that leads to some falling out. It's circumstances that don't allow us to experience common humanity with someone in the first place at all, right? Basically, we get put in situations where it's not that we empathize and connect and then disconnect. It's just situations that make it difficult to get that first connection in place, um, even uh, even as a, as a beginning. Yeah, thank you. Hi, thank you so much. Um, I work in the organizational development field, and I'm, I'm curious, you noted a few studies and um, some of the advances that you were able to make through that. But in a in the workplace, have you done any studies or tested? And do you have anything, I guess, more case study-wise to, to share? Yeah. I mean, there's this is like a whole other talk um, that I give around building uh, empathic cultures in organizational settings. But there is like reams of evidence about this out there. So first of all, there's tons of evidence about the benefits of empathy in the workplace for things like morale and bouncing back from stressful moments in an organiza- organization's life. Um, and there is also a significant amount of work 
on um, sort of how to build empathy in those contexts. It hasn't really been translated very well to organizational settings. And in fact, my um, partners and I are trying to sort of connect with different types of organizations to do that. So I work with like hospitals and police departments and schools. And, and now we're working with businesses as well to try to help infuse empathy into, into those cultures. Yeah, that's great. I guess I was just curious, like if you had, say, worked with a police force and you like from one year versus another based on some of the tactics that you had used, if you'd seen change and kind of what those tactics were. Yeah. So my work in, in these organizational contexts is too new to report on. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you a story about one that, that inspired me and that is in the book. That's um, uh, the police academy in Washington State. Um, so the Criminal Justice Training Center, which um, Sue Rar, the new sort of commissioner, took over in 2012. And Sue basically decided to reform the entire culture around uh, empathy and empathic principles. So um, at the time, they ascribed to what she calls, they wouldn't have called it this, the warrior mentality. So training was all about, you know, the people who you see are your potential enemies. They're, they're threatening your life. And your job is to sort of be like a combatant behind enemy lines, right? Um, and she replaced this with what she calls the guardian mentality, the idea that you're collaborating with community members to help keep everybody safe. And she runs these drills that are sort of like mock crime scene drills and you show up and you've got this wooden gun and you're freaked out and there's like people, you know, act, acting in very aggressive ways, but your job and the only way to graduate from her police academy is to deescalate the situation. And you have to like, listen to people and report back to your trainer. What were they feeling? What were they saying? You know, what, why do you think they were acting this way? Um, it was one of the most remarkable um, organizational shifts I've seen. And since she took over in 2012, the use of force across Washington has, uh, by police has, has decreased, especially towards individuals with mental illnesses. So that's one case of an organization that, um, that I think is really inspiring. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I was curious about the white supremacist. Um, what... What was inherent in him or what was in his environment that caused him to put himself in a place where he would meet someone where he would then learn empathy as opposed to others in his organization who didn't? Yeah, thank you for that question. It's a much longer story um, that actually I, I read a lot about, but Tony has a book coming out as well. Um, uh, I think it's called The Antidote to, to Hatred. And um, the way that he tells it, you know, he was really all in on, on this life until he had uh, children. Um, he had he had two kids sort of uh, back to back and he and his partner um, split up. So he was a single dad. And, and he, he, real, he just felt this sort of connection to his kids that was very unlike what he had felt from his own parents. Um, and I guess it sort of inspired him that you know, there was another way to feel loved that didn't have to involve being part of this community that, that he was part of. And also, he became worried that they were going to be affected by his high-profile, hateful life. So that's part of why he was trying to extract himself, was because of um, becoming a father. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Hi. So I have two questions. Um, the first one is, to what extent do you think that people can learn how to act empathetic instead of becoming more empathetic based on some of the examples you came with. It sounds like there's a reward in being empathetic. Mm -hmm. So how do you distinguish between the two? So that's question one. That's question yeah, one. Um, <laughs> yeah, people can absolutely learn to act empathically. Um, there's all sorts of training programs, especially um, in medical settings to help uh, medical professionals communicate empathically. Um, and it's, it's tricky because uh, oftentimes you want to encourage medical professionals to actually experience more empathy for their <laughs> patients, but um, that can be hard for them because they're constantly surrounded by suffering. And if they um, experience too much empathy or a certain type of empathy um, too much, they can burn out. So now a lot of this training has toggled from trying to have doctors and nurses and social workers put themselves in the shoes of patients to having them just communicate in the right way. And it's, it's amazing. Like it's almost like acting class. You know, I've been to some of these trainings and it's like, okay, you need to pause for longer and you need to ask how the person is feeling and say, this must be hard for you. And it's a little, you know, there's a lot of controversy around whether that's a useful way to train people. I talked with one of the folks who does most of this training. Um, his name is Tony Back. And he, he told, he, his view is that 
you fake it until you become it. That basically, <laughs> if you learn a type of communication over and over again, you end up embodying what you're showing. Um, this, I don't think there are great data around that. In fact, <laughs> his own, I mean, I love the guy, but his own training program, there was just a randomized control trial for it that found that indeed physicians who go through that program wait longer after delivering a diagnosis, they ask more about how the person, you know, they, they're saying the right things, but their patients don't feel like the physicians are any more empathic. Mm-hmm. And they're not more satisfied with their care, whereas physicians' actual self-reported empathy does track satisfaction with care. So that was a really long answer. Thank does you. that address what you're asking? Yes, thank you. And the second, you sort of went into this anyways, um, but I, a lot of this talk was about cultivating empathy. How can you maintain empathy once you have it? For example, in the case of physicians that are exposed to scenarios where they have to be very empathetic over and over again. Yeah. So uh, the first answer to that is I'm not sure that it's always the right thing to maintain maximal empathy all the time, especially if you're in a volatile setting like that. I mean, I, I, I'm, I study empathy and I believe in its benefits, but I'm not an empathy fan. You know, I don't think that we should all turn our empathy up to 11 at all. T- I mean, if you did that, imagine trying to walk down like one block of the tender, you'd just fall apart if you took on everyone's pain all around you. So one thing that I think about, you know, that's what I say when I, when I use the term empathize with purpose is to actually try to tune our empathy in a mindful and intentional way rather than turning it up all the time. Another thing that, that I talk a lot about when I discuss burnout and compassion fatigue is the idea that, so you remember that like Venn diagram that I showed that empathy has these different pieces to it, right? Um, that it's important not just to tune our empathy, like turning it up and down, but also to toggle between different types of empathy depending on the situation that we're in, right? So um, oftentimes physicians and other people in helping professions experience lots of affect sharing, right? So they're, they're feeling as their patients feel. That I don't consider a particularly sustainable type of empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, so what a lot of people in contemplative practices, for, for instance, right, meditation training with these same folks are trying to do now is focus people on empathic concern, on feeling for someone without taking on their specific emotions all the time. So I think that in terms of maintenance, it's sort of like, well, be as empathic as you want to be in that moment, as you feel is useful in that moment. Something I always tell people is like, don't worry if you need to shut it down for a moment or two. Like it's, we're not, we're not empathy machines. We're good at it. We're better at it than other animals, but we're not meant to just be maxed out on it all the time. And then the other thing is to be wise around the type of empathy that you're feeling. There's, there's been a lot of research in that area too. Uh, I mean, one of the big differences I think is just what you were talking about, but maybe said slightly differently, which is you recognize as an empath, the most successful ones recognize those are other people's emotions, not mine. You feel their emotions, but you know they're not yours so that you don't suffer for their suffering. You feel for their suffering, but you don't experience their suffering as your own personal suffering. I, I think that distinction makes it easy to sustain empathy. Yeah, you know, because I, I, it's not yours. It's not your, you can do something about their pain, but it's not yours. Yeah, quick addendum to that. I, I um, shadowed uh, the workers at a NICU, a UCSF's NICU um, for the book. And one of them, a nurse there said something that I'll never forget. You know, th- these are people around vastly premature children um, mm-hmm. for, for a living. And she said that sometimes she just goes to her office, puts her feet firmly on the ground and repeats over and over again, this is not my tragedy. Mm, yeah. It's easy to manipulate with empathy. You haven't talked about that. <laughs> if you get too empathetic... You will be used. Um, I agree with the first half of what you just said. Um, Yes, empathy, like any other emotion, um, can be manipulated by other people, right? So propagandists use empathy all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of fomenting care for victims on one side to foment anger for whoever one sees as the perpetrator. Yeah, I agree. Um, That said, the second part of what you said is that if you're empathic, you will be used. Again, I think that one of the things that I want to drive home here, if there's anything that you take from this talk, is that empathy is under our control more than we know. So I think that, yes, empathy can be manipulated. But what I always ask myself when I'm watching television or reading the newspaper is I'm saying, What is the person who's creating this message? What are they intending for me to feel? Mm -hmm. And what do I feel about that? 
right? And so I think it's important for us to be mindful and intentional about our emotional lives. And that includes anger, sadness, and empathy. Right. Uh, thank you. Um, uh, it's just timely reporting about this, really. Um, the cultural aspect of it you mentioned about this, also there's a religi- religion factor to it. You know, uh, the factor of, of how to actually uh, pray to God when you are actually serving other people with empathy. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of there's a religious aspect to it, which we were raised, some of us, and uh, that, that's, that's a good phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, I think for many, many people of many different religious and spiritual traditions, that's where they get their instinct and their desire for empathy. And I think that's one of the great values of, of religion, in fact. Yeah. Um, so you're from the Stanford Social Neuroscience Laboratory, it looks like. And I was hoping you would speak to some of the neuroscience underlying empathy, because we hear a lot about the neuroscience underlying hatred or fear mm-hmm. as giving rise to hatred. And especially with the amygdala, people talk about that a lot. Um, I just spent two and a half years on a thesis um, regarding the treatment of PTSD. So I know the amygdala is in part under our control. And I've noticed like in the conversations I've had, I don't hear about the parts of the brain that are controlling the amygdala, that are telling the amygdala not to react in the way we would expect. So could you speak to that some more? Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, yeah, so uh, a couple of things that I, I think are important take-homes about the neuroscience of empathy. One is that, again, I talked about these different flavors of empathy, different pieces of empathy. The reason that I believe so strongly that those are different things is because they're supported by different brain networks, right? So there are different systems in our brain that help us understand what someone is feeling that's distinct from the parts of our brain that Uh, that are active when we're sharing what someone is feeling or when we feel compassion or concern for what they're feeling. Another thing I'll say about it is that neuroscientific evidence is part of the reason that I feel so strongly that empathy is more like a skill and less like a trait. There was this astonishing study that came out of Germany a couple of years ago where they trained people in compassion meditation. So sort of this like contemplative sort of Buddhist inspired practice um, meant to really cultivate goodwill for other people. And they did it every day for 40 weeks, which is a long time. It's like a lot of work. Um, And they scanned these individuals' brains before and after they did this practice. Um, And what they found was that the practice behaviorally made people more empathic. So they, these folks reported caring more about others. They were better at telling what other people were feeling in these sort of lab tests. And they were more generous in their everyday lives. But the parts of their brain associated with empathy also grew in volume as a result of the practice. And that change in their brain tracked the behavioral changes, right? So the more that your brain changed as a function of this practice, the more that, um, that you reported and other people saw you as more empathic, which to me is a great example of neuroplasticity. To your point about the amygdala, interestingly, um, the amygdala is not really one of the brain regions that's canonically associated with empathy, but It can be associated with empathy for particular emotional states. The way that I think about it is empathy is often in the brain a type of mirroring, right? So basically, like, whatever that emotional state looks like in the person who's experiencing it, an empathizer will, their brain will look a little bit similar. So empathy with certain emotional states that are associated with vigilance or... I mean, I hate to call the amygdala the fear center of the brain. If you've studied it, you know that that's not accurate. But, you know, certain empathy for certain emotions will cause amygdala activity. But also, if you are asked to turn your empathy up or down while you're in the scanner, you can see modulation of amygdala activity that actually comes from sort of um, ventromedial prefrontal. Well, you know, you know this stuff from the PTSD literature. I don't want to get too far in the weeds. But yeah, there's some of that work is out there too. Yeah. Um, I actually come more from the, the business organization side of things. And I have a two-part question. Um, what I often see is that leaders really do set the tone for corporate culture and and by by sort of a corollary empathy mm-hmm. or, or lack thereof. Has anything in your research shown that that could be somehow um, less dependent upon the person or the couple of people at the top of an organization and more sort of institutionalized in different ways? And then the second question relates to that are introverts or extroverts uh, shown to be more empathetic? 
Yeah, I'll answer the um, second question first because it's easier. Um, <laughs> it's simpler. Uh, no, there's not a strong correlation between extroversion and, and empathy, although agreeableness, which is another sort of big personality structure, is, is correlated moderately with empathy. I mean, it's tough. The, or, your organizational question is a really good one. It's a hard one, though, because leaders often set the tone for how people communicate with each other and what is highlighted in a culture. I mean, one example that I really like in this, on this front is from IDEO. So IDEO did this great analysis where they basically, it's almost like a social network analysis. They asked people to nominate colleagues who they found were helpful to them um, and to nominate colleagues who they had helped. And using that, they identified sort of, I guess, glue people, empathic heroes, whatever you want to call them, um, individuals who stood out as central to these communities of helping within the organization. And those individuals, it's really interesting, were not always the most powerful and were not always the most skilled as measured in other ways. But what IDEO did that I love was they recognized those people and elevated them as leaders of the culture. So I think that like that's one strategy that I love in terms of sort of building an empathic culture from the bottom up. The issue, though, is who's going to institute the policy that we're going to run a social network analysis and sort of elevate the people who show up as um, as glue folks. Well, that's got to be some someone um, with some leadership. So I think that it, that or, empathic organizational culture can be uh, encouraged rather than for, forced on people. But it obviously requires some buy in from people at the, at, who are leaders. In the research, you mentioned that the empathy, especially in the 21st century, went down and, and the, from four to three. And it, is there any, any correlation between 9-11? Because people really felt attacked there. And it's very interesting because that's the way it was presented, yeah. that we're being attacked personally. And if you, if you just look at the numbers and the amount of violence, which is all terrible, but if you go back to World War II, you know, that many people died every single day for four or five years in a row. Yeah. And, and yet people went through that and came out. And partially maybe it was due to the fact that World War II, from an American point of view, was to help other people get out of a very serious situation. Um, so it, it, it's just weird that that, that that attack, bad as it was, but you know, only momentary, yeah. has had that big an effect on the culture. Well, I, I mean, I completely co-sign that it's had this enormous effect on, on, on our culture. It's interesting you know, how much it stands out in our mind, those deaths compared to, as you say, deaths during World War II, or I mean, I would just go further and say deaths during the Iraq War, which, right? I mean, which sort of was the response, I suppose, or, or one of them. I, I mean, w- when it comes to your question about whether that's a sort of factor in the decline of empathy, I mean, that's an important thing to specify is that we don't... To say that a change has occurred over time is not the same as explaining why it occurred, right? right? I mean, because history is not an experiment that you can repeat while tweaking different <laughs> factors, right? Um, uh, for better and for worse. Yeah, that's, that's um, for, yeah. good. for good, I think. Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. This is more of a comment um, from the world of education. There's a good deal of um, social science research evidence that, um, ev- that empathy can be cultivated in children. It's not hard at all. It's just a matter of wanting to do it and paying attention to it. And then um, on the organizational front, um, there were, there's a Stanford, I don't know if he's a colleague, I, I think it was Anthony Brick, B-R-Y-K. Anyway, he did a big study on trust in schools and, mm. you know, duh, that students mm-hmm. do better in schools where the adults trust one another and where the teachers and the administrators um, trust one another. And again, it can be cultivated. People can learn to do this, but um, oh yeah, I mean, this, I mean, the field of socio-emotional learning is massive, exactly. right? I mean, the Wisconsin has their whole kindness curriculum. Right, and, it's all it, yeah, yeah. There's a lot, but I think people have to stick with it, which districts often don't. Um, but my experience over many years with this is that um, in a school where the culture is kindness, um, the kids do internalize it. It's not just because um, you know to get stickers or. Um, approval. They actually want to be kind. <laughs> they will be kind, and it, and it, they carry it on past the school years. I think it's quite one a of, bit of research. I think one of the most damaging things about the view that empathy is a trait rather than a skill is that it demotivates. Um, I, I mean, I think that if it, anything that's a skill is pr- is probably easier to learn earlier in your life than later. Um, I don't know, maybe, but um, but it demotivates 
sort of that application in education of sort of soft skills because thought, well, you can't teach that, so why should we try? Um, and I think that's a really uh, damaging stereotype. But it's also incorrect. This is maybe just a fun one. Have you ever come across people who can empathize with animals but not people? And why might that be? Uh, yeah, I mean... Um, <laughs> uh, well, you know, I think that, uh, yes, I have come across people like that. I've gotten that question before as well. And, you know, one of the things that drives empathy and especially empathic concern is um, a sense of helplessness, right? So why are kids... And babies in particular, the targets of such great empathy, um, you know, Conrad Lorenz and other folks ha- had this theory a long time ago that it's kin kin schema, right? So like babies have these like faces with these, you know, you know what a baby looks like, big eyes and big forehead and the rest of their face is so small. And other animals, when they're, you know, sort of um, juveniles have that same, that those same facial structures. And the idea was that turns up our empathy because we, it, it turns up our caregiving instincts. And empathy arose, I mean, one could argue the most ancient form of empathy is that of parents for their children. And that's not just human parents, but all sorts of... And so I think that one reason that, it, that I've heard that people find it easier to empathize with non-human animals than with people is because we think, well, people have more agency and, you know, as these powerful beings should be able to fend for themselves. But I don't feel the same way about animals. And, you know, because they're helpless, I feel greater empathy towards them. Just a, just a thought. From, from your lecture, we're going to have empathy and have one more question. Oh, God. <laughs> Sorry, mine's maybe a fun one, too. Um, <laughs> I've always admired comedians as far as them being able to make me feel empathetic. Yeah. It's very instant gratification. Any cool stories on your end? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I have stories. I mean, I, th- I think one, one thing that's interesting about comedians is that, is that because they subvert our expectations and are able to say things that are difficult but in a way that is palatable to us, I think that they sort of are able to... I don't know, get across a perspective that we wouldn't be ready to hear, um, but sort of, yeah, I guess a spoonful of sugar, right, um, helps, the, <laughs> helps it go down. Um, but yeah, yeah, great. And, and a spoonful that you used very well tonight. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. And so ends another event in the 117th year of Enlightened Discussion at the Commonwealth Club.